Father, the reason that it is well with our soul, as Horatio Spafford discovered when he wrote that song, Crossing Over the Ocean, where his daughters had perished. It's because when his strength gave out, and he could no longer hold on, he was held held by you, by your power, by your grace, and by your mercy. And Lord, there are those among us who know what it is to lose strength. And the encouragement from this song is that it is well. It is well with your soul because you know the one who holds you in his arms. We thank you and praise you for that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Please have a seat. Before I begin the message, just a little shout out to all those of you who are online, uh, whether you're traveling or whether you're at home or in the hospital like my wife, greetings uh, from First Colony Bible Chapel. So I love the uh, picture, Shelley, that you uh, chose for the bulletin uh, up front because it plays exactly into what I want to speak about. I love going into the book of John right after uh, Christmas because we're able to extend uh, that sense of Christmas for a few uh, more weeks. At least once or twice uh, during Christmas season, Uh, We sing the hymn, O Come, All Ye Faithful, uh, written in uh, Latin, Italian, (laughs) Adeste Fidelis, and it was around 1741 by uh, John Francis Wade. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come uh, ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. O come and behold him, uh, born the king of angels, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Interestingly, though, and uh, don't bother looking in the hymnal because you won't find it. It's not there. Most people have never heard of verse 3. It doesn't even appear in most hymnals, but it is there. And John Francis Wade wrote it. God of God, light of light, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created, sing choirs of angels, sing in exultation, sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. Now what in the world does that mean? Uh, That we don't use a word like abhor very much. Uh, it's not in our normal vocabulary. Low, we don't look we don't use the word low at all. If we do, it's in a child story about sheep that are lowing. Now, low means to look. It means to look at something, uh, but it's being used figuratively here. It doesn't literally mean to look at something happening. What it means is to take and grab someone's attention so that they uh, think of something else. It's along the lines, in this case, of look The mystery of the incarnation is astonishing. And even the Apostle Paul 
wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. In other words, the mystery of godliness is, is really the heart in many ways of the Christian faith. And the godliness that's spoken of there through Jesus Christ is expressed through us to the world today as light. You know, Christianity is not a system of rules or actions that are performed in order to appease some deity. That's not what it is. In fact, it says that the mystery of godliness is all about God taking on humanity so that we didn't need to appease him, but his son, Jesus Christ, could die on the cross and give us salvation. And the interesting thing about this is God didn't figuratively snap his fingers and simply say, uh, behold, uh, my son. No, there was... An amazing thing, if you reflect on it, most people, we just blow right through the Christmas story and think about very God, second person of the Trinity in Mary's womb for nine months. I mean, something that we would tend to think of as an intolerable, unimaginable confinement In humility, he took upon himself. It wasn't that the Spirit of God was was put into him at some point. He was fully God and fully man. Now, when uh, Bernard of Clairvaux uh, uh, was a young boy, he fell asleep waiting for a, a Christmas Eve service. And while he was sleeping outside the church, he had a dream in which he saw the Son of God as a little child in Mary's womb. And at that early age, he understood that the majesty of God was contained in humility in the virgin's womb. It so moved his heart that he never forgot it. And much of the music that he wrote actually stemmed from this uh, dream, if you've Um, where he said, out of love, uh, Jesus was conceived, and out of love, he chose to die for us. It is not our sanctity. It is not our fidelity. It is his love. I mean, when we look at our unending uh, creativity and imaginativeness about sinning, Uh, we can understand this uh, sacrifice and we wonder what God sees in us. So it was nearly a millennia ago, and if you don't know who Bernard of Clairvaux is, you will recognize this. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. One of the most unique concepts that we find in all of Scripture is the incarnation. You may have heard this word, you may have heard it many times, uh, but what does it mean? Now, perhaps you've uh, gone to an Italian 
restaurant and ordered uh, carne uh, asada. And uh, you get roast beef, right? Or uh, perhaps uh, you in school learned about carnivores. Well, what's a carnivore? A carnivore is an animal that eats uh, meat. And, and or what we did number of times when we were in Italy, and you, you can't miss it. It's, it's a different thing. It's a very family-friendly, fun, wonderful time. It's called the, the uh, Carnivale, and, uh, the Carnival. And it's a time when you go uh, there and, and just have a lot of fun. What does it mean? Well, that word carne is this notion of meat, flesh. And so when you talk about the incarnation, what that means is God made flesh, the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and dwelling among us. So in our passage today, the final verses of John's prologue, we find the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. And so uh, please listen to John 1, uh, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, uh, this is... Uh, he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God at the Father's side as made him known. In previous uh, passages, we've talked about the word, we've talked about the life, we've talked about the light of the world. And all these phrases we learn apply to Jesus uh, Christ. We learn that Jesus is divine. He is eternal. He has been working in the world ever since the creation of the world. In fact, we know that he was the creator. Uh, but there was a problem. Problem was we fell into sin and, and so into darkness. And so the scripture says at just the right time, God sent the light, right? The very light uh, into the world. It is only by that complete identification with us that Christ could be the one that Eve had hoped for, the second Adam, the perfect man that Adam was not. And, and John drove this uh, point home uh, directly. Uh, he selected a term that everyone familiar with the uh, scriptures would know. I mean, even at that time, he uses this word, he dwelt. The word literally, uh, if I can use that uh, phrase, uh, means he pitched his tent among us. That is a word that you're more familiar with, he tabernacled among us. 
and, and John did that deliberately. What he wanted to do was to pull the reader's mind all the way back to the tabernacle in the Scripture, the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where the glory of God dwelt with the people in a uh, tent called the tabernacle. Now, we get that, we don't, when was the last time you used the word tabernacle? It sounds like a disease or something that would grow on your toe. But it's from the Latin uh, tabernaculum, uh, which means tent, just means a tent. Of interest, there's only one place that I could find this in the English language. And it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. If you change the B to V, which I think from a phonetic perspective is actually the same sound, but, uh, you end up with a tavernacle. Uh, which was later simply reduced to tavern. Didn't know that. <laughs> Taverns were initially all housed in tents because they were, you know, movable. Uh, so this passage tells us that Jesus, the very glory of God, tabernacled among us. And I mean, ultimately, the tabernacle in the Old Testament has no meaning without Jesus Christ. He is its intended uh, purpose. And, and the whole point of the tabernacle was really to point to this future time when the Son of God would come. We read in Colossians 2.9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Just a couple of thoughts about the tabernacle. Trust me, other people have uh, thought about the tabernacle a lot more than I have. They've even written books on it. So, but there were a few things that I would think in terms of uh, meaning for us today. First, the tabernacle uh, was the center of Israel's camp. It was the heartbeat of the life of Israel as it uh, moved. It was the gathering place for the people of God. And I'm reminded in... In John 12, 32, where Jesus said, If I am lifted up uh, from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So you have, this, you have this idea where the tabernacle, which was the center of the religious life of the uh, Israelites in their wanderings, Jesus now is the center of, of ours. And then you have that it was the place for the sacrifices of sin. Uh, that's where God's people went and made these sacrifices. In Hebrews 10, which we looked at uh, this morning, uh, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And finally, the, the tabernacle was a place of worship. And uh, I mean, just to keep that as, as concise as possible, I think of Thomas. When Thomas came to know who the, the, uh, the Lord was in his resurrected state, he said what? He said, my Lord and my God. So it moved from a tent to a person. I mean, to look forward for just a moment, 
at verses 17 and 18, Moses wanted to do something. Moses wanted to see God. He wanted to see the glory of God. But God told him not to look. You can only handle this little tiny this little tiny bit. We see that in Exodus 38. But we have the privilege of looking on the face of God when we look upon the word, capital W, of God, Jesus, by faith. And one day we will see him face to face. My heart and my mind are drawn back to uh, it is well with my soul. When Spafford wrote, Lord, haste the day. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Why? Because his heart was breaking. He wanted to get past that. He wanted to move past that. He wanted to see the glory of God so that his faith was sight. This is what Moses wanted. This is what we should want as well, to see the glory of God. And we can, in some measure, see that today when we look at the face of Jesus Christ. Now, glory in Hebrew means uh, weight, literally, like you were to weigh uh, grain or you were to weigh uh, wine or water or something like that. It, it means weight. And the glory of uh, God and uh, full of grace and truth is certainly something that's weighty. That is, it's a serious thought. In, in, in the text, it's possible to, for us to say that we have seen his glory, John's talking about. We've seen uh, Jesus, who is in fact glorious in uh, nature. You know, he fulfilled the prophecies of God in the, the scripture, that is the Hebrew scripture. He's, he's uh, God himself, the light of the world. And all of those things, by the way, are true. But I think John has something else in his uh, mind. I think he's, in addition to saying that, he's reflecting on a memory. And, and that would be the transfiguration now, perhaps you're very familiar with the transfiguration. Perhaps uh, you've never heard of the transfiguration or perhaps uh, you have uh, forgotten. In Matthew, we read, though, about a time when John and a couple of others saw Jesus in his uh, glory. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. I was driving here just a couple of days ago. And if you come at the right time and you're not careful, the sun will blind you. You, you have to do kind of a this thing in order to get through. And you're dazzled at that point. You can't really see anything. I cannot begin to imagine in any way that John would have forgotten that for a single moment. And he talks about this glory. And, and I mean, there's the light of the world actually lighting the world in unmistakable glory. Now, grace and truth, he was full of grace and truth. 
are, are, these are two things that are closely, very closely connected. They're wedded to salvation. The Bible teaches that through believing God's truth in the gospel, and uh, through that believing, one receives uh, God's grace. Now, though the shadows of it, you could see that in the uh, Old Testament. Now, uh, through Jesus Christ, it becomes crystal clear what we need to do. The gospel is not complicated. The gospel itself is uh, simple and uh, obviously uh, very... what would be the right uh, what would be the right word uh, weight very <laughs> weighty but but simple and and so grace here is just a beautiful word grace is given to us uh, based on the love of god we did not earn it and it's because of god's goodness that we have this i mean we measure our success in fact Metrics, if you're a football fan at all, you know they track everything. I don't, they track everything. The, the, the length of the, the stride, you know, the, the, the azimuth and the direction of the football and whatever all else. They track it all. And in tracking that, that's how we determine our success, our, our failure. Are you meeting your metrics but God gives grace not based on metrics. What good thing did you do to deserve the grace of God? Let me tell you. I'll tell you right now. Nothing. In fact, God does not simply shed his grace upon us when we fall short and when we sin. The scripture tells us that God allowed his grace to shine upon us when we were dead. But instead of remaining in guilt, he offers and extends forgiveness and redemption. I mean, the truth is seen in Acts fifteen eleven, which reads, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace has been well-defined as Uh, God's unmerited favor. It is important for us to understand that God, for his reasons, not ours, not any merit on our part, has shown that favor through Jesus Christ. And that grace, as we sing, is greater than all our sins. God loved us even when we were sinners. The Bible's clear that we're all sinners. And since we're all sinners, we all need the grace of uh, God. We read in uh, that uh, verse 16 that we've received grace upon grace. Now, the notion here is the uh, intensive. So uh, that's the way I take it anyway. There's another way to read it, which I think is probably valid. So it's probably a combination of the two things. But the notion here is it's not just a grace, but it's grace up upon grace. It's, it's pressed down. It's running over. And the amazing thing is, is that as much grace as God gives to us, he is not depleted. It's grace ever new, but greater. 
And, and for a fuller understanding, I believe that's why John puts this text in here in verse uh, 17 where he says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do not read this as John saying the law was nothing. Now, finally, we got done with that. Now we've got grace and truth through Jesus Christ. That's not why John put it here. The reason John put it here, I believe that in context, understanding the law of Moses was in fact itself a type of grace. When you look at the Ten Commandments in particular, uh, especially because of the broad uh, scope that they have, what you find is that it's not, we say it's lex talionis, right? The law of the claw. It's, that's what that is. But it is still grace because eye for eye, trust me, from an emotional perspective, if somebody pokes your eye out, poking one of their eyes out is not sufficient. It's not. You want to kill them or take both their eyes at least. And so from that perspective, in terms of justice, there is this grace that's there. And now we have grace, which was given through the law of Moses. Now we have a salvific grace, which is given through Jesus Christ. And then we move on to uh, uh, truth. So 25 times in John, he uses this word. Is he talking about factual truth? Yes, he is. Is he talking about objective truth? Of course he is. But huh, what he's actually talking about, even more specifically than those two things, is the truth that is embodied and incarnated. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that we find in Jesus Christ the one whose glory is displayed. Uh, in in 15 and 16, it, which is kind of an aside, and it, I was I struggled with how to put this in here as the translators struggle with how to put it in the text. But what I'll just say, because we're going to talk about him some more, so I don't need to talk about him now, is that John, the apostle, his mind, second only to Jesus, is filled with John the Baptist. And he says this, uh, John... Uh, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me. And remember, John the Baptist is witness to this er earlier uh, passage. And even though while uh, Jesus said none greater had been born of uh, women, John the Baptist was quick to announce that Jesus uh, was greater. We went through this um, last week, but we move on through that to grace and truth made known to us through him. I'm, I'm kind of moving, I'm trying to keep it in a, uh, a sense where we can hold on to it, but we uh, come to uh, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, uh, the only God at, father, at the Father's side has made him known. God is a spirit, and we don't even, trust me, we don't even know what that means. I mean, in, in our space-time continuum, all we think of is embodied, disembodied. We don't, we don't honestly even know 
we have no concept really that we can attach to of what that means, which is one of the reasons Jesus Christ came to us because Jesus Christ has been made known to us. He has a uh, body. We see Christ, we see him. In fact, John fourteen nine says, if you have seen me, you have seen uh, the Father. Jesus has made uh, him known. And he, he did this, I think, in many ways, but not the least was the transfiguration, the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection. Now, as we move towards the conclusion of this uh, text, I want to mention uh, something which I've alluded to several times that I want you to, I would, uh, I, I simply uh, would ask you to reflect on during the week. And, and that is about grace. Uh, you know, I mentioned the, this song before grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Unfortunately, we have a Savior who is full of grace, the grace of our uh, Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone. Uh, I want to be very clear about this. This is a great truth, but it starts with the incarnation. It starts before that, but one has to understand how the kind of the thoughts of God and the bringing about of those thoughts of God and that kind of things, the intentions and so forth, in his mind are all one. It's only sequential for us. But it starts with the incarnation from a logical perspective. The penalty for sin is death. And so to be saved from the penalty for that sin and the wrath of God, we need to take that punishment or another needs to take that punishment and for our salvation the significant step that was taken that was christ born into the world incarnate so that he could be made flesh so that he could die for our sins i mean even uh, people unfamiliar with the scripture are familiar with these uh, twin concepts of grace and truth the Mosaic Law, which John alluded to, uh, consisted primarily of law and uh, justice, two concepts that remain uh, vital and relevant today. When the Bible talks about the law, it's referring to primarily Exodus 20. It's uh, about the, the Ten Commandments. And there's something uh, for us to... Uh, grab a hold of, a a hook that we can hang our thoughts on, is that the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets. And the law demonstrated something. What was it that the law demonstrated? The law demonstrated that even if you obeyed the law, that was insufficient for salvation. It wasn't going to get you there. The law revealed our need not for stone tablets, but for a person, the heart of flesh as a savior. Sadly, by the New Testament, the religious leaders had really hijacked uh, even the law. They had hijacked it. They'd added their own rules, their own traditions. You can read it all about it through the New Testament, especially in Mark 7. But as interpreted by the Pharisees, 
keeping the law had become oppressive. It had become an overwhelming uh, burden. So we just see that it was too much. You know, Jesus says, as part of his discussions with the people, my burden is light. Uh, Paul tells us that at the same time, the law itself was good, but it was weak. It could not change the sinful heart. And it was into, it was into the legalistic setting that Jesus came. And what did Jesus say about the law? He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The law was not evil. The law was not wrong. What is wrong is a misunderstanding of why we have the law. As we read, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself embodies this perfect balance between these these two things. And, and many who had lived under this pharisaical system for so long, uh, they eagerly embraced the mercy and uh, the grace that Christ offered. But some, they saw it uh, as a problem. And, they, and, and this is where this is... I'm, hopefully this argument will come together while you fully understand what I'm saying. The problem that they had with this was that if that is the case, what would keep a person from casting aside moral constraint? Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans uh, 6, that's what it's all about. When he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound, may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This is the difference between doing and being. This is the difference between in obedience to the law, where it's your obedience that determines your rightness or wrongness with Christ, as opposed to being, where are you in his family or not? They're two separate things. Properly understood, there's no conflict between grace and law. The purpose of the law was ultimately to bring us to Christ. And once we are saved, then God chooses to glorify himself through our good works. Okay, here's the point. Good works follow salvation. They do not precede it. Now, throughout history, this conflict has been active. It's simmered, it's boiled, it's simmered again. Why? It's because if we misunderstand the purpose of the law as a requirement rather than as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, then we misunderstand what God wants us to do. Second, if we define or redefine grace as anything other than God's benevolence on the undeserving in such a way that it results in salvific, that is, saving merit, 
and favor than, or even this, I would go so far as even to supplement. I don't even believe that there's a supplement here. In that case, we are following the error of the Pharisees and we're using man-made rituals and traditions. And today we hear echoes of this. So just in case, I don't know where you're at. I don't know uh, what you've heard or anything like that. But I I do want to be clear from what I understand that Scripture to be teaching. We uh, We hear that salvation is by grace and grace alone. And then we hear, uh, no, that idea of uh, grace and grace alone leads to lawlessness. God's righteous standards must be upheld. And then someone else, of course, chimes in. uh, Yes, salvation is by grace. But grace is only extended to those who obey the law. (laughs) So let me be clear if you've ever worried or wondered about this, and I know that some have. I myself did. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The keeping of the law cannot save you. It cannot. The fact, uh, I'd say in fact, those who claim Righteousness based on their keeping of the law only think that they're keeping the law. In the whole point, the whole point, or at least one of the main points of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5 was that you think you keep the law, but you cannot. Even if you think you've done it, you haven't. When the Holy Spirit guides our search of Scripture, and we study to show ourselves approved of God, we discover the beauty of grace and truth and have a foothold in understanding the reason that grace and truth are not mere concepts, but they're realities embedded in the incarnation of the word of God. Otherwise, there would be no salvation for us. Father, we are deeply grateful for your word. We have nothing else to cling to, to appeal to. Uh, You give us uh, that which is necessary, that which is right. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is the one that we worship and praise, my Lord and my God. It is only through him that we have anything. It is only through him that we have salvation and life eternal. Amen.